are tuning in to the Love Breezy Bree Yoga podcast. My name is Bree, and you can find me at lovebreezybreeyoga.com. Check out the show notes for more information, including a link to my website. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Namaste! I received such great feedback about last week's episode where I shared an excerpt from a yoga teacher training program that I was so honored to be a part of. And this week, I am going to share another, and this is so appropriate for yoga students, yoga teachers, students who aspire to be teachers, all of the above. It has some really great information about how we learn, especially as adults. So I hope you stay tuned. Namaste. Okay, everybody. So now let's transition into another topic. I want to give you some ideas and concepts to think about as you embark on your journey as a yoga teacher. Now, what I love about yoga and what I love about teaching yoga is that we are all students. That is not something that you can necessarily say in every other discipline, right? You know, most of the time becoming a teacher of something sort of exudes your intelligence in that subject, you know, your expertise, But in yoga, it's more of a guidance. It's like, it's almost like being a host or hostess into this beautiful philosophy that you are just bridging a gap between the student and that philosophy through your guidance, through your teachings, right? And also, you are still very much present as a student. Even when you're teaching, many times you're present as a student. So... I want us to think about this idea and concept before I move on into the next structured part of the topic. Now think about it this way. Yoga is simple, but it is not easy. Yoga is simple, not easy. Simplistic, simplicity, that is yoga. Easy, Not necessarily. And we're going to discuss the why. Now, I know what you might be thinking or feeling, rather it's consciously or subconsciously, is that yoga is all-inclusive. It is for everybody. It will always meet you on the mat. Yoga is a philosophy that's vast with many disciplines under its umbrella. And there is a space, a sacred space at that for whomever wishes to practice. And all of those things are 100% true. And for that, that is not why yoga is not easy. Yoga is easy in the sense that, yes, you can find a place to practice. You can find a discipline. You can figure out what part of the philosophy really resonates with you until you have the growth you need to branch out. Those are all true ideas. But what we fail to really wrap our minds around, mostly because of why yoga is not easy, 
is because of our own human nature. Our own human nature. Yes. So the same reason why we are overthinking the ideas of yoga and we are always consistently trying to figure out how we can make yoga something that it's not for us, which is just something that we all tend to do in life, rather it's on or off of the mat, is the same reason why yoga is not easy. And another reason why fear can begin to present itself with your practice. Now, yoga is very much simple. And I am going to tell you why. And in telling you why yoga is so simple, we'll also gently explain why it is also not easy. Now, there are three fundamental postures of yoga with others, of course. And I am going to talk about three of the main fundamental postures of yoga. And I'm going to throw in a fourth one for you to be able to consider. Okay. The first fundamental practice or, or pose, I should say. And let me back up before I jump into this. Under the philosophy of Patanjali, we have eight limbs of yoga. Three of those limbs of yoga is what we most focus on when we think about a typical yoga practice, especially in studio, right? The rest of the limbs are very philosophical, but one of the limbs is asana, and that literally translates to pose or posture in the ancient language of Sanskrit, which I will also talk a little bit about. So asana is the poses and the postures. We have pradayama, which prana is life force energy, right? So pradayama is breathing. That pradayama is that breath work, the yogic breath. And then we have meditation. Now, when we combine asana with pradayama, we move into what I like to teach, which is a moving meditation. Now, you can get moving meditation or moving meditative responses in lots of different modalities and disciplines from art and dance and running and swimming and walking, observing. There's lots of things when you're moving the body and you're focusing on the present, you're intentional with your breath. You become very introspective, very meditative. Okay, so those things are true. Now, the idea is that the more you practice asana, the more likely it is for you to have the wellness in your body to be able to sit still in meditation. Now, the advanced poses that we see in an asana practice, whether it's handstand or an advanced twist or turn or pretzel-like posture, balancing posture, whatever it may be, it's all relative to where you're at, right? So for some, something such as warrior three, balancing on one leg can be very challenging to also be engaging your breath work and staying in the present, right? And for others, they need something more challenging to make sure that they can still stay 
utilizing their breath work and in the present. So the idea isn't, can you do a handstand? The idea is, can you do that posture while also focusing with intention on your breath work, your pratyama, and your meditative state, right? The mindfulness, the present moment. So if you're able to do those things, then you're entering into a yogic phase of being. If you're just pushing your body into a handstand because you can do it, well, then you might just be actually doing gymnastics. <laughs> so the idea isn't that how advanced is your posture. It's how can you obtain and attain your pratyama practice while in that asana posture, creating that mind-body connection, entering into the present, and becoming meditative. Now, the body in its own infinite wisdom has other different mechanisms to help us survive, right? So the nervous system actually needs signals from the brain to know is something a threat or not. And if you're standing on an edge of a cliff, worried about falling over that cliff, well, you're probably not going to be able to have slow and controlled and engaged intentional breath. If you see a scary tiger, bear, lion, something of that nature, human, you probably are not going to stay calm, cool, and collected unless you're trained to do so. So then what will happen is you will activate your fight or flight reflex. And at that point, the adrenaline is going to rush through your body to help you to survive, which is a very exhausting type of mechanism that we go into. And even though we do not have those type of threats in today's society, we have other threats, we have other stressors, and constantly depleting our adrenal glands creates stress in the body. And on a cellular level, we begin to introduce trauma into our space, into our ecosystem, which then has a domino or ripple effect where we lose sleep and so many other things begin to take place that are very negative. They're the opposite of what we're hoping to achieve. Now, when you practice yoga or you just learn how to practice breath work, which I believe to be one of the most important things that you can teach yourself is how to calm down, right? How to relax, how to tell your nervous system by way of your brain that you are safe and secure, you feel grounded, you feel okay, right? Because then we activate the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest. And we were in that state of being we are creating wellness in the body, right? There's lots, there's lots of different ideas and concepts in using Ayurveda, but there's an idea of sattva. So we be, create the sattvic environment in the body, in the ecosystem, where everything is sort of balancing itself out in its own infinite wisdom. As long as you provide healthy soil, good sunshine, a little bit of rain, things of that nature, nature will indeed take its course accordingly. Well, 
that is essentially what we're trying to teach the body through the mind when we are practicing pratyama. And when we couple that with asana practice, then when you're standing in, you know, one-legged balancing posture, rather it's warrior three or it is a dancer pose, your body with breath is going to feel calm. But if you freak out, your body's going to think you're on the edge of a cliff and you're going to activate the part of your nervous system that you don't want to, right? And that is why when we get spooked or we're scared of something, we see something, we hear something, we feel something, and we have that little shudder, your heart starts racing because immediately it's an instantaneous survival mode at that point, which is actually really, really helpful. Unless you don't need to be in fight or flight, right? So we're always trying to teach ourselves to breathe to be in the present. Because again, when you're thinking about the past, you might get triggered. If you're thinking about the future, you might find yourself having fear. And you, when you're in the present, second by second by second, right? Then you're able to focus on what's here and what's now. And if you're in the here and now, and you're not in fight or flight, then that means you're probably closer to feeling safe and secure, right? So that is what we're trying to achieve when we're in a yoga practice. Okay, now let's talk about those three plus one fundamental poses or asanas. And they are so simple, but they're not easy. The first one is mountain pose, tadasana. This is the most fundamental standing posture in yoga. When you learn how to take Tadasana, you then set your body up for every other standing posture or standing on one leg posture in a balancing. So when you know how to equally distribute the weight into both feet or one standing leg, when you learn how to engage through the legs from root to rise, lengthening through the spine, the side body, strengthening through the core, supporting the spine, engaging your pelvis in a nice neutral position, having your shoulders relaxed, having your shoulder blades engaged, your heart is activated yet protected, and you're lifted up then you can learn how to take that very engaging stance throughout all of your other asanas. It is not just standing there, right? If somebody was walking by and there was a group or a person taking mountain pose, tadasana, they would maybe just think they're standing, but they would probably think, wow, that person's really standing intentionally. Sort of like when you see Secret Service or you see someone in the military or something along those lines where they're really erect. You know that that's taking a lot of concentration and they're in the moment, right? And they're using every ounce of their being, all of the engagements to be in that, that position. So it's simple because we all stand for the most part, but it is not easy. 
Now, the other would be the seated variation of mountain pose, Tadasana, which is staff pose or Dandasana. And same thing, everything from root to rise, from the feet where the toes are pointed, the internal rotation of the legs, the tail just really grounding into the earth, the lifting through the side body, the neutralization of the spine and the pelvis, the shoulders down, the heart protruding but yet protected, lengthening in the neck, the head floating above, and your drishti or your focus point off the tip of that nose, for instance, is very intentional, right? But someone might just walk by and think you're just sitting there. (laughs) So although it's simple, it is not easy. The other would be Shavasana. Yep. You're not just lying down. Nope. Contrary to popular belief, this isn't the time during the practice where you just go to sleep. No, no, no. This is a very intentional posture. You know, again, from the tips of your toes to the crown of your head to every fingertip, The body is really engaging into the earth. You're feeling yourself sinking and feeling safe and grounded from every point, everything that's touching the earth. And you're noticing your breath. You're still paying very much attention to where the mind is wondering, letting thoughts come, letting them go, keeping the ones that you might need to hold on to, right? And even though you go into a bit of a relaxation state, there is point where the brain will begin to go into a a different vibration, right? There's beta, theta, omega, all those different states. Your brain will, this wavelengths will begin to go into a bit of like autopilot, which is very resting for the brain, which is why yoga nidra is so resting. Although it's definitely not sleep and it's definitely not REM sleep or deep sleep, right? You're still very much actively awake. So those are three very simple postures. If someone was just walking by, they would just think someone was standing there, sitting there, or lying there. But they are not easy. And the fourth one for good measure, because it is such a popular pose in yoga, is downward facing dog. Down dog is the fundamental posture for any balancing upside down inversion type postures going forward. It is a little bit more advanced than, let's say, dolphin pose, but it is less advanced than, let's say, forward fold. You're in an inversion, so your head is below heart, so the blood coming to your head is supposed to bring you to a relaxed state, all things considered, if you're in super healthy, hydrated form. You're pressing your hands into the earth, so you are balancing on your hands as is. If you took both legs up, you'd be in handstand, so it is a modification or variation of handstand. And it is one of the most iconic and popular postures in yoga. People who say they would never do yoga or don't know anything about it probably would recognize downward facing dog. Warrior two being a nice close second, right? All right, so those are all super fundamental postures in yoga. There are others, but those translate into other postures. You know, Dandasana or staff pose also translates to any seated posture, seated twist posture. And then, of course, lying on your back can also turn into lots of other postures as well. 
And so you have a sensibility of the importance of these very simplistic postures. Now, most people recognize these postures, whether they understand exactly what they're supposed to be doing in them or not is a different thing, but they do recognize them, which takes me into the next purpose point topic of today's lecture. And it is our learning styles, right? And I shouldn't say that because there's lots of different learning styles from, you know, um, needing to touch it, needing to do it, see it, audible learning. Most of us need all of those. And I'm going to talk about that. But this is this is going back to cognitive archaeology. Now, the idea of everything I'm about to say brings us back to patience. We all need patience when we are learning all of us children and adults alike now those who have suffered from trauma trauma is very interesting because it completely rewires the brain and we're going to discuss these pathways these roads that all lead to the same place kind of thing when you've suffered from trauma, and we all arguably have in some capacity or another, either directly or indirectly, and collectively recently with the pandemic, and we're still yet to understand the true effects of this, this world that we've all just sort of been through. But the idea is that if you are in your most healthiest state of being, mentally, physically, emotionally, right, you don't have acute triggers that take you into, you know, past events when the past threats are not currently applicable to your situation, yet the trigger is there. So, you know, you hear a firecracker, you think of gunshots if you're, you know, a war vet or a police officer or just lived in a really horrible area of, of your city. Um or something similar to that, right? That's really acute trauma that's um, very, you know, you, you have to mostly deal with those issues first, right? Because the learning process really relies on you being, so to speak, at your best, right? You have to feel safe and secure. So other things that can impede on your learning capabilities would be, Lack of sleep, you know, the least, the less you sleep, the more it's like your brain is drunk. Um, if you are on any medications, those could affect how you learn and how receptive you are in your memory, how well nourished you are, your micro and macronutrients. If you have any other learning disabilities just that are innate to you anyway, Injuries, also you might understand how to do something and just not be able to physically do it. And ailments such as illnesses and things of that nature that could also, you know, create a delay in your ability to be able to learn. Now, we are all typically learning something every single day. Some of us Actively and intentionally try to learn something new as often as possible, but many of us learn things rather we realize it or not anyway. We have all of the senses for the most part, you know, um, just and let's just make an assumption that we all have 
you know, most capabilities. I understand that some people don't. And and that is beautiful that there's a way to navigate that. Um, but for the purpose of today's lecture, just making a general assumption here. Now, mind you, when you teach yoga, you are going to have lots of different abilities in your classes um, in an all levels class. If you teach to a particular demographic, then you will have specialized training in those areas, right? So if you're teaching yoga to people in wheelchairs or teaching yoga to um, people who are post-chemotherapy, teaching yoga to children, to those who are pregnant, these are all different abilities um, that are going to impact what it is you're teaching and how you go about doing that. But for today's lecture, we're going to make a generalization, okay? Now, when we think about patience, patience is something that we all need when we're learning something new, right? And especially when we're learning something new intentionally. You start a new job, you have to be very intentional about learning the new rules and and regulations and meeting people and putting your best foot forward. It is a lot of work. If you've ever started a new job or, you know, you've been in a new environment like that, you're probably extra sleepy and extra hungry, right? Because you need more nutrients, you need more glucose to feed the brain, it's being depleted by learning, and you need a lot more sleep to repair, okay? So if you are learning stuff that's really new, give yourself more nutrients, give yourself more rest, okay? Same thing is true no matter what age you are, but we are going to talk about the differences of two groups of ages. Uh, pre and post age 25, 26 seems to be agreed upon, okay? Now, in cognitive archaeology, adults learn differently from kids, which you know, this seems to be commonsensical, right? We understand that children are, they're an environment where they're consistently learning something new. They're constantly, you know, being challenged. They are given options. They're, you know, observing. Their entire survival is based on them being aware. So they have a lot more energy for that, <laughs> right? Um, but as we begin to age, our pathways, which I like to think of as roads. So imagine that there's a big house on the hill and there's lots of ways to get to that house. You can see it from afar, but to get there, you can go by boat, you can swim, you can go through the mountain, you can go through the valley, you can go by car, you can go by plane, and there's lots of different weathers and temperatures and times of years and times of day that can affect all of these roads that lead to the big house on the hill, okay? Now, if you are lucky, <laughs> if you are lucky, you have been able to take every single route if not all of them, most of them, to get to the house. You've gone by boat, you've swam, you've gone by plane, you've hiked, you've gone by car, you've biked, you've gone when it was dark, when it was sunny, when it was freezing, 
you've gone every which way you can imagine to get to the house on the hill. Now, if this is your house, then chances are pretty high that you've taken lots of different routes to get there, right? Where we have familiarity, we have many options and we are more pliable, right? So if I'm on my way home after class and there's a huge traffic jam, immediately I start thinking about all the different routes to get home. If I'm transporting children with me, let's say they're my kids or, you know, just hypothetically, they are observing that we are taking a different route home. So now they're learning that that is an option, right? And so on and so forth. So everyone, now your your pathway in your brain is going, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. You probably do that with everything that's familiar to you. You do that to your yoga class. You do that to your work. You do that to your house. You do that to, you know, your five family members, best friends, houses, your grocer, you know, your gas station. You know where an alternate gas station is in case your gas station isn't working or it's packed. You have all of this dialed in in your community. But the moment you're in a new community, all of a sudden you just put on your GPS and that is the one way you're going to go. And if you're if you run into a traffic jam and you're brave because you know that there's lots of different ways to get to different places because you've done this before, you might venture off and go, you know what, I'm in an entire different state, but I'm pretty confident that this isn't the only way to get there. But if you're not experienced, then the best bet is to stay on the main road. If anybody has teenagers driving, I have a little sister, um, I'm pretty sure you've told them do not try all these different routes home, right? You just take this one way home. This is the safest way. There's police station there. There's a gas station there. You know, there's, you know, grandma's house is over there. Whatever. Do not go the back road. You're not an experienced driver yet. If you get a flat tire, you don't know how to change your tire. If you run out of gas, if you don't have cell service, there's so many things that can go wrong. You can run into danger. You can run into strangers. Just stay on the main highway. Um, you might even tell them don't take the freeway. Um, stay on the side roads. Whatever it is you tell your teenagers and you probably show them some different ways and maybe one alternate path, right? You feel probably like that is all their brain can handle unless, unless there's some reason why you feel more confident in them, right? Maybe your town is smaller or your, your teenager is brighter in that realm, whatever the case may be, right? So, but as you get older, you feel a little bit more confident. You know, you know if you go through a dirt road, you're in a four by four and you know what to do. You know how to change a tire. You have, you know, an analog cell phone. <laughs> I don't know, just whatever, right? You feel pretty good about it. Um, another good example is if you're about to run out of gas, you're probably not going to want to put yourself in a position where if you ran out of gas, it would be dark and you'd be in a side street or some dirt road. Okay. So now that you have learned all about driving today instead of yoga, <laughs> the good news is the majority of us, if not 99.999% of us, probably are drivers. So this is a really great example, actually, because we all can relate to that, 
right? And so when you translate that into learning, then the idea is this. First, let's let's keep our driving analogy alive. Trauma. Trauma is equivalent to you're driving and you've been in a really, really horrific accident. Horrific accident. That's trauma. Now, for some people, a little fender bender can can shake them up a little bit to where, you know, they're really extra cautious now. They'll never text when they're driving again. They'll always wear their seatbelt, things like that. For some people, it could be so traumatic that somebody died, right? Or they they were in the hospital for weeks, things like that. And that can change everything about their driving. If they choose to not even drive at night, if they choose to never drive on the freeway, if they choose to never drive a convertible, if they choose to never, you know, you get my gist. That's trauma. Same thing happens with trauma. And the opposite is true. You know, someone who's only ever had a pleasant experience driving might feel very confident or has driven lots of different types of cars from semis to (laughs) motorcycles. You know, they're just very proficient in driving. Okay, which is not me, by the way. Um, That is what you can think of when you think about these learning pathways. So the more experience you get, the more options you've had to exercise, the more successful failures you've had, the more likely it is you, you are able to learn something and be able to decide that you can create a similarity to what you've already done before and what you need to learn now. So if you're really proficient at driving a bunch of four-wheeled automobiles, then you might feel just perfectly fine also driving a boat on water or maybe even flying a plane, right? Maybe it's a learning curve because now you have to think about water and you have to think about different types of safety and you have to think about different things or same thing with the plane, but the mechanics of driving are similar or maybe learning to drive um, a 18-wheeler, a semi-truck would feel fine um, because you've already driven like really large 4x4s, whatever. Um, same thing with driving stick shift versus automatic. (laughs) Okay. I I'm, I'm taking this to the next level because this is like, these are the examples that just go on for days, but these were really good. And I really hope that this ingrained in your soul in the most annoying way, because then that means that you're going to remember this when you're teaching and when you're learning something new. So babies and children are in a constant phase of learning they're super survive survival oriented you know innately their instinct is to survive adults begin to form their structured pathways around the age of 25 26 this is when the brain is fully formed allegedly right this is what science is telling us as of date If that is true, then that means that up to 25 years old would be the best times to be introduced to all types of various things. Not necessarily to have to master anything, right? 
it's almost like a jack of all trades, master of none would be perfectly okay because then once you are trying to master something, you have something to be able to make that connection back to versus not knowing anything or not having the environment, the good soil to plant those seeds in, right? So if the house is on the hill and you've only ever driven the paved road on sunny days and then now all of a sudden the road is closed and it's raining outside, it's going to really be a challenge to do the alternate route, right? And so the same can be said about learning. So with that said, what actually happens in the mind? When you're under the age of 25, someone could be demoing something and your brain can literally watch it through the eyes, through the mind's eye, as they say, and you can translate that to your nervous system And you can perform that based on demonstration, right? And of course, this is something we're all super familiar with. This is why children can sit in class, at least in my day, and just watch a teacher demonstrating something on the board um, versus now a lot of learning has a lot of different styles integrated integrated into it, especially adults learning, which we'll talk a little bit more about. I think children's learning is leaning to this too for a multitude of reasons, which I think has a lot more to do with lack of sleep and nutrition and sunlight and vitamin D and (laughs) things that I don't want to digress into than it is about true capability to learn by visual effect. I know when I was younger, I could watch something, watch someone do something, and I could pick it up and mimic it, right? Um, Rather that was dance choreography or, you know, sketching or art, um, music, you know, even just styling my hair, right? And so as you get older, the brain, if you haven't had an opportunity to give your brain an option to think about what it can relate it to, then the brain will just go, Oh, we've never done this. I don't want to. <laughs> right? And so, but if the brain goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we've done something like this before. That's fine. Which is why it's so important to challenge ourselves. And that is r- the reason why success is really in failure. Because the more you do, the more you try, even if you fail, you are rewiring your brain and your nervous system right? And you'll hear people say things like take a cold shower because you're rewiring your nervous system. All of those things are probably true. I mean, obviously, if you get used to the cold, you're used to the cold. If you get used to the hot, you're used to the hot. If you go somewhere that's really cold, people are going to tell you, oh, you'll get used to it. And same thing is with really, really hot, right? And you do because then when you're really used to hot, any inkling of coldness feels very, very frigid, right? And vice versa. So there is something to be said about rewiring your nervous system. Now, when you're younger, it takes less time to, you know, learn something new, right? To be introduced to something new and be receptive to it, I want to say. 
Doesn't mean you'll learn it. Doesn't mean you'll master it. Doesn't mean you'll be good at it. But you're more receptive to it the younger you are. As you age into deeper into adulthood, you still have every opportunity to learn as if you were that cute little infant learning how to crawl, (laughs) right? But you might need a lot more repetition. You might need a lot more examples. You might need different analogies that have nothing to do with it, such as driving. You might need demonstrations. You, You might need a ton of different ways to be introduced to the same thing, as well as ways to not be turned off by things. And I'm going to give you a quick example, and this is going to be more yogic. (laughs) So let's talk about Sanskrit. Sanskrit is an ancient language, and the way that we utilize Sanskrit in yoga, now Sanskrit is very beautiful, it's very vibrational, and there's, there's a lot of esoteric mystery behind it. But... From a practical perspective, the way that we utilize it in yoga is through terminology, right? We are literally naming the postures in a different language, Sanskrit. So it would be equivalent to only speaking Spanish like this, leche, and then someone hands you milk. You're not asking for it. You're not making a complete sentence. You're just pointing and saying leche. You're just pointing and saying pantalones or pants or jeans. You're you're not talking, you're not having a conversation, you're not speaking the language. You are speaking the word with the item, right? And that is exactly what kids do. Kids point and they they say happy, they say hungry, they say toy, they say sad, they say no no, night night. They say little things until they learn to form sentences. So When we are first learning something, as I mentioned, you're going to be very exhausted. You're going to be a little more hungry. You're going to need some more nutrients to feed the brain when you're learning new things. And you're going to need downtime and rest after learning those new things so that the brain can process them, accept them, and want to do it again. Okay? Now, the way that you can turn the brain off really easy, the way that you can turn your students off is by giving them more than they're ready for. And one really simple way to do that is by speaking Sanskrit. The moment the brain hears something foreign, it might just completely not be able to relate to that. Now, if you're, if you're teaching to students who speak more than one language, then that might be intriguing to them, right? Might spark interest. But for many, it's, there's so many connotations that might enter the mind. So now you're taken out of flow state, you're taken out of the present. And also you're wondering what the heck that means, which means you're now taking on too much, the brain's depleted, right? And you have no idea what your students are bringing with them that day on the mat anyway. You know, as we mentioned, lack of sleep, injuries, not feeling as well, moody, you know, whatever it may be. So now you're adding in something. So let's say you're teaching yoga and you like Sanskrit and you want to plant those seeds. I think that's beautiful. First thing I would suggest is pick and choose which Sanskrit words you're going to use. I tend to say the same words in my classes and I might add a different one or a new one here and there, right? So I have a handful of Sanskrit words that I think are easy to learn, easy to say, and 
students can sort of start to learn them and they're a part of the fundamental postures. So I mentioned them already. You know, mountain pose is Tadasana. I think that's a fundamental posture in yoga. So I think it's good to say Tadasana in Sanskrit. Dandasana, staff pose for the seated variation of that fundamental posture. Shavasana, which most people recognize. Namaste as well. And then I might add other ones like Ukatasana or Navasana, different ones like that. So what I won't do is have everything I say be in Sanskrit or only say Sanskrit alone without the English variation or say Sanskrit first. So the first thing I will do is say, we are going to start by entering into mountain pose. I might teach the mountain pose and then say, Tadasana, or we're going to enter into mountain pose Tadasana. And I might just say them as if they're one word, right? And then maybe later on in that class, I might just say Tadasana, right? Depending on the type of class. And then students begin to learn those words from me, okay? Now, what I do try to do is get rid of some of that mystery. It's hard to do in a class, easy to do in a workshop setting or some other learning environmental setting with students. And what I will try to encourage them to understand is that Sanskrit or at least with the poses, the names of the poses, all share something similar, which is like that root, which is asana, which means pose or posture in Sanskrit. And so when you say tada, tada, sana, or nava, sana, it's literally mountain pose, you know, boat pose, asana being pose. So whatever is ahead of that is going to connect to asana pose right? And then that mystery of this like weird language is sort of taken away from the brain. And then the brain doesn't have to focus on that so much and decide it doesn't like it, right? Like, what are we speaking these weird words in yoga for? I just came to relax. I just came to yoga for relaxation tonight, right? So we also as teachers need to be mindful of that as well as making sure that Everything we say and everything we introduce allows the brain time to process and gives the brain time to understand and has multiple ways of being able to learn something, okay? Repetition, simplicity, but not easy, right? That is yoga. So when you teach a yoga sequence, it's always great to start and teach the fundamental postures, adding in things that are going to link those postures together in a simple way and repeating it, right? So maybe you repeat the exact same movements throughout your yoga um, session or your sequence with little variations, or you build upon what you're teaching so that the, the as they do the next thing, it's like a part of the last thing, Right? So then when they keep progressing, they're doing it naturally, right? Because they just did something very similar, but now it's just a little bit more. 
or they're doing the exact same thing and you're adding in something as a little bit of surprise. And right when the brain is like, whoa, that was something new, they do something comforting that they understand. So those are the two different ways I like to structure my classes. You know, I talk a lot about sequencing. We'll have another session going deeper into sequencing. You know, why, for instance, you open the hips before balancing on one leg. And, you know, not that these things are dogmatic and have to be done that way, but why we sometimes choose to do things certain ways. But the other thing is it's not all about just the peak posing or the themed classes and teaching the students all of these neat ideas and themes and concepts and philosophies in this one 60-minute or 90-minute session. It's not always about that. It's about making it simple because yoga is not easy. Learning is not easy. We need a lot of different ways to understand how to get into plank. We need a lot of different descriptors. You know, sometimes yoga teachers And I love it. I love when I'm in a yoga class and, you know, there's some really strange philosophical analogy about life or something and my body's related to that. But I also really love just teaching something very simple because I'm used to teaching kids. And the students sometimes laugh because I might say something like, you know, go into Ukatasana, right? So that's chair pose. So we're going to take chair pose, Ukatasana, hands above head, shoulders down the body, you know, begin to squat like you're in your invisible chair. Obviously, everybody's imagining an invisible chair, so that's pretty standard. And then I might say, sweep your hands behind you and lift your heart like you're downhill skiing. And everyone can relate to what that looks like in their mind, even if they've never done it. Then inhale up, Raise your hands towards the sky. Okay, that's up. So you can say, raise your hands towards the sky. You don't have to say the word up, right? Um, you know, take a gentle back bend or open up your heart kind of thing, right? So that's a little esoteric. Rise with your core. Again, may not be really a resonating idea for many. Like, where's my core? But everybody kind of thinks my belly, right? So for nothing else, it's there. Uh, workshops and special learning sessions helps you to develop what the core is, how to activate that, how to know where, how to know how to do it. Um, and then we might say things like swan dive down, which is is interesting, right? So it's like a bird going into the water, hands are flying and flapping, but gracefully like a swan, right? Versus like, you know, pigeon down to the ground or whatever. <laughs> And then um, we might say, you know, bring your hands to the earth, step into a plank, drop your knee and turn your back of your body into a bridge and your, your leg is the pillar, you know, things like that. I might tell them swoop into up dog or like a little cell soaking up the sun on a rock. You know, those are sorts of it's like, oh, okay, I can envision that so I can try to get my body there. Right. Um. And then there's times where you want to teach the actual name of the pose or you just want to teach the movement, right? So instead of talking the way that I described like we did with Leche and Pantalones, right? Instead of talking and and saying, okay, um, raise your hands up, take a back bend, come up again, find yourself in forward fold, Come into plank, take a child's pose, 
tabletop. I mean, you know, there's no flow there. I'm not saying that for an advanced practitioner that wouldn't be, you know, received well. But it's like, okay, if I turned all those words I just said into Sanskrit or then it just sounds like you're pointing and babbling like a baby learning a new language, right? Which English can sound like if you're talking like that. So you want to make connections. You want to give people different things to work on. Maybe you're teaching them that this this particular posture's name is sans, it has a Sanskrit name. Maybe you don't want to focus on that for another posture. You just want to focus on alignment. Maybe the next posture, you don't want to focus on alignment at all. You want to focus on breath. You know, some postures, I was joking with my class the other day that I was describing a posture that's self-explanatory, right? And so I don't have to describe that posture. It's like you can't get into that particular posture without your mechanics of your body naturally doing it instinctively. So let's talk about breath. Let's talk about dristi. Let's talk about something else instead of alignment, right? Now, a posture where alignment's important, that's going to be maybe more of a focus. And, you know, you really just start to realize that there's an order of operation, but there's also an art, right? So the order of operation is the science, let's say, but the art is how you tell the story. It's like going to a really good movie. If you just read the, the screenplay, the movie's there. You can just read it. It's like girl knocks on door. Person ignores knock on door. Girl waves through window. Person closes curtain. It's like that what? But if that was a sitcom, that would be funny maybe. Or if that was a thriller, that would be scary. Like who's in my house or whatever, right? That's what we want to think about when we're teaching yoga. We want it to feel like an experience for the student. An in-body experience, not an outer body experience like going to the movies. So I think I wrapped it all up. We've talked about so much today. Um, let me just check my notes and make sure. One last thing I want to leave you with. I want to talk about this later in great greater detail, but it puts a nice little bow on today's present, which is the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns states that the more proficient we become at something, the less we get out of it, right? So we have to find some way to progress. And naturally, that tends to happen by way of learning something new or working on something better, right? So if there's nothing else to learn new in that particular modality for you, for whatever reason, <laughs> right? You've just tapped out. Then refining the process or focusing on the technique of, of whatever it is or getting really cellular on how you can improve is going to then progress it, right? And eventually there will be diminishing or no returns depending on what it is. And that's just the law of uh, one of the laws of nature. So the expectation of I am always going to be euphoric after a yoga class, oh my gosh, is a really, really um, dangerous expectation that yoga has put on all of us. Um, recently on a forum that I helped moderate, a, yoga, a recent yoga 
teacher. So she just became a yoga teacher. She just went through yoga teacher training. I want to say it's been about a year. She's struggling on enjoying her own practice because she feels like the mystery's gone. You know, that whole, I don't know why I feel so good when I leave class. But now she's gone through yoga teacher training and she knows essentially why probably you feel so good. (laughs) It's like it kind of, she was really attached to the mystery, right? And sometimes that happens with things. It's like for some of you, you will feel even more engaged in your practice because you get it. It's not this esoteric, you know, crown chakra spiritual experience only it's like no I know that if I do this posture it's going to relieve my sciatica (laughs) you know it's like very practical very logical for others of you it might feel that way it might feel like oh man you know I used to just go to class and I didn't know how my teacher was throwing down this flow but I was just enjoying it It was good times and now I'm in class and I'm like whoa that's a really weird transition that that did not feel good on my body or oh my gosh this teacher did not leave me in shavasana but for 30 seconds or wow you know I can't believe that they had us doing this instead of this it might actually take some of that mystery but I invite you to teach your students and yourself that yoga is a lifelong practice there are going to be different seasons and different times where yoga comes and flows and goes throughout your life and that is okay. You will miss yoga when you're not practicing. So chances are really high that it will re-enter into your, your life because it's in your spirit. And if you find yourself not being present, then figure out how you can get connected back to your meditation, your moving meditation. I do that by just going on a walk and regrounding with earth. And when I get back to my yoga practice or, or, I practice outdoors because it really wouldn't matter to me, honestly, if all we did during yoga was sun salutations, some child's poses, and maybe the warrior series and tree pose to Shavasana if I'm practicing outdoors. I I wouldn't even, that simplicity of that alone would be perfectly acceptable to me, right? let alone just sitting in half lotus or full for some or shavasana and listening to a meditation outdoors. So it means that you've disconnected from pradayama, meditation, and maybe even all eight limbs of the practice. And it's a good opportunity for you to go to some workshops, re-engage, try different teachers, maybe a new discipline, maybe leaning into the subtle bodies of yoga, the chakras, some esoteric stuff, if that's what your heart desires, or get even more intentional about how to modify or create progressions of postures for your own body, utilizing props. There is a lot of different things you can do so that you can keep that spark. Yoga is not just some... What's the word I'm looking for? Let me let me rephrase that. Everything you do, no matter if it's just walking, it can have a technique and a rhythm to it that makes it more healthful for you and more intentional and it can be more holistic to your life. 
you just have to be intentional about it. You have to have an intention as to your why. You know, so everything can mean something. Everything can be something really beautiful. Or it could be something really forgotten, right? If you if you approach life being in the present, then something as mundane as washing dishes can actually be an enjoyable experience. You might be thinking that now I'm full of it, but I know when I wash dishes, I like to feel gratitude, right? To have water and, and to have dishes and to be washing off the food that I probably just had. And especially if I've cooked for other people or even for my furry friends, my furry babies, I'm I'm washing up after us. I'm cleaning up after us. I'm so grateful. And I've learned to do that because that used to be a really chore for me when I was younger. Um, when I was really young, I felt like, oh my gosh, I hate this. Like, cannot believe this is my duty. And now I just feel so different about it. I actually go to other people's houses and when they throw dinner parties and stuff, I am the first one in the kitchen washing the dishes. It's become probably because my mother like made it such a discipline and and made it so rough on me. Like I had to do it no matter what kind of thing. Um, But I so enjoy it now. So I just, we have to keep that perspective. All right, you guys, we have finished today's lesson. We had a really good, what has it been, two and a half hours or so, um, with this last part being really just amazing. Thank you for all being here. Thank you for just being really present through the program and and giving me this opportunity to share, you know, the business of yoga, the business of teaching, um, how to create space for your students and and give back something that was so healing to you because deep down we're all wanting to gift this beauty of yoga to others and also to figure out how to also do this so that it is possibly you know feeding us it's it's our way of survival as well so Thank you. I will see you all next time. I think we have a bit of a break between now and our next session. So I will see you then. And I hope you all go in peace. Take a deep inhale and exhale. Namaste. It's me, Breezy Bree, and you just finished listening to a brand new episode of Yoga Podcast. Did you know I started recording back in 2018 with almost 500 episodes, hundreds of those free audio yoga classes? I am so honored to guide you on your personal practice on and off of the mat. Check out my website, lovebreezybreeyoga.com, a link in the show notes will be provided along with lots of amazing information for your practice. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste.